the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Well, I've had a hard time trying to sort everything out to keep my head above water, trying to figure out who's whom and where and for how long and what they're charged with doing. In fact, I uh, put out a call earlier today in the office for Dramamine. My head was sort of spinning trying to keep track of uh, everything that's happening in Washington. But we'll try to put some uh, some perspective on the decisions that have been made over the last few days. Let's see. Sean Spicer used to be the White House spokesperson, and then he was the communications director. But then he was out. Reince Priebus, he was the, let's see, he was the chief of staff. Um, Scaramucci was just on the outside, but then he was made the communications director, and then he made some foul statements in public, and now he's out, and John Kelly is in. Well, if you're like me, it's been tough to keep up with uh, all that's happened over the last few days in Washington. There was supposed to be a clear, a clean slate, and now there's another clean slate to follow the previous clean state slate. rather. Scaramucci called a reporter to demand that he give up the person who leaked information in his bid to put an end to the leaking. And instead, he himself became the lead story. Um, his language, it was particularly unfit to uh, a repeat on radio, so I won't even attempt to do it. Um, many uh, radio and television personalities were trying to figure out how to cover the story in detail uh, without crippling fines from the FCC, because what he said in the interview could not be repeated on the public airwaves. Brian York said this, a new president needs a staff, his administration with people who will be loyal to him. Donald Trump's problem is that he doesn't have enough loyalists to staff the White House, much less the entire executive branch. Well, whether or not that's the case, there certainly has been a lot of activity and uh, movement of chairs, if you will, in Washington. It was just 11 days after President Trump uh, appointed him. White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci is out of that job, the latest in a string of staff shakeups. Early indications this afternoon were that retiring Marine General John Kelly, uh, the president's brand new chief of staff, didn't like the way Scaramucci operates. Kelly himself was named only Friday to replace Reince Priebus as chief of staff. And prior to Friday, and by the way, Scaramucci, many of his comments were about the chief of staff and another associate in the cabinet. And the prior Friday, the White House announced the ouster of Press Secretary Sean Spicer and the appointments of Scaramucci as communications director and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who had been deputy press secretary to replace Spicer as press secretary. Now, Scaramucci, previously spokesman for the U.S. Import-Export Bank, had not officially assumed his White House duties when news of his departure broke. In a statement released shortly after the news broke on Monday, Sanders said Anthony Scaramucci will be leaving his role as White House communications director. Uh, Mr. Scaramucci felt it was best to give Chief of Staff John Kelly a clean slate and the ability to build his own team. We wish him all the best. And that was the end of that. Well, Sanders also had used the phrase clean slate to characterize Spicer's resignation. At the time, Spicer committed to working in the White House through August. Not clear what that means now. Uh, Kelly, previously Secretary of Homeland security was brought in to fix what was seemingly a chaotic White House. Last week, hours before the announcement of the chief of staff change, Scaramucci harshly criticized both Priebus and top presidential aide Steve Bannon in foul language while talking to a New Yorker reporter who published his words. He also appeared to brag about his plans to fire multiple employees of the communications shop. Bad idea. The president certainly felt that Anthony's comments were inappropriate for a person in that position, and he didn't want to burden General Kelly with that line of succession, Sanders told reporters during the press briefing today. General Kelly has full authority to operate in the White House. All staff will report to him. Sanders said at this time, Scaramucci does not have another position in the administration. In other words, he's no longer associated directly uh, with the administration in any official capacity. Now, he had made uh, brazen comments before his ouster that he was going to report directly to the president. He was not going through the chief of staff or any other hierarchy. 
Uh, That apparently will not be the case. Now, late Friday, as I mentioned, the president uh, replaced his embattled chief of staff, Reince Priebus, with Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly, the decorated retired general, who'd been leading his administration's charge on immigration enforcement. Now, perhaps having a general in that position, uh, given the chaos that we've seen, is a good move, but one wonders... Uh, where that leaves Homeland Security, where he had served as its secretary. Well, this seismic shakeup capped another roller coaster week in the West Wing, rocked by the public clash between Priebus and the new White House communications director, or who is now the old White House communications director. The latter's hiring prompted Press Secretary Sean Spicer to resign in protest one week ago and immediately touched off speculation that Priebus could be next, which, of course, he was. White House sources confirmed that uh, Priebus, the former Republican National Committee chairman, resigned secretly on Thursday. Trump made the announcement publicly on Twitter late Friday afternoon, saying, I am pleased to inform you that I have uh, just named General Secretary John Kelly as White House Chief of Staff. He is a great American and a great leader. John has also done a spectacular job at Homeland Security, where he served for how many weeks? Uh, He has been a true star of my administration, the president tweeted. Well, as I mentioned, General Kelly is a retired Marine general, formerly commanded the United States Southern Command. And perhaps a uh, a person of that stature and experience is what is precisely needed in the White House to introduce some stability and uh, some chain of command. Priebus was traveling uh, with the president on Friday. Reporters spotted him getting in a car after the Air Force One landed at Joint Base Andrews. Uh, Reince is a good man, Trump told reporters at Andrews. John Kelly will do a fantastic job. General Kelly has been a star and so on. A day earlier, Scaramucci was quoted in The New Yorker uh, criticizing Reince Priebus. And I think one area of relief will be just not having to try to pronounce the name correctly. I've heard it uh, said every uh, possible way and have probably done so myself. But nonetheless, he is no longer associated with the administration and efforts to say his name correctly and respectfully will no longer be required. All of that said, Dramamine, I think that was the thing that um, that seemed appropriate. Meanwhile, it was three Republicans who voted no that killed the latest attempt to repeal Obamacare. Senator John McCain, who returned triumphantly to uh, cast his vote saying, yes, I will support the notion of opening debate swiftly, along with um, uh, Senator Collins and Murkowski. No surprise there. Voted no. Um, they coasted on dislike of Obamacare for years without really doing the serious work of figuring out what health policy should look like. Jay Cost rightfully says on Twitter, and now that the hard work of governing and actually uh, moving forward policy is in their hands, they seem to be Uh, unable to come up with uh, a a plan, at least at this point. Senator Lindsey Graham reportedly has a new overhaul plan for the Senate where senators uh, uh, returned today because Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had revoked the first two weeks of their traditional August recess. Uh, From another story in uh, CBS News, uh, while the House has begun a five-week recess, the Senate is scheduled to work two more weeks before a summer break. McConnell has said, The unfinished business includes addressing a backlog of executive and judicial nominations coming ahead of a busy agenda in September that involves passing a defense spending bill, raising the government's borrowing limit and so on. In the White House's view, they can't move on it, uh, move on in the Senate. uh, Mulvaney went on to say, referring to health legislation, they need to stay. They need to work. They need to pass something. Now, part of the problem is the president is saying something without really filling in what that something ought to look like and leading the charge. But nonetheless, Washington Examiner uh, on the same subject reported not helping his case. Apparently, John McCain was uh, talked into opposing the health care bill by Joe Biden and Joe Lieberman. Bit of uh, inside information on that back and forth. 16 minutes after four o'clock, we're winding our way through some of the news that developed early, or I should say late last week, earlier this weekend and into today, trying to make sense of it all. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. 
While there was supposed to be some action on the Senate side with regard to Obamacare, repealing, replacing, making it skinnier, putting it on a diet, there were a number of options. Conservative lawmakers are still holding out hope that Congress can strike a deal to repeal Obamacare after the latest plan failed in the Senate, as Republican leaders signal that they are ready to move on and focus on tax reform. Well, Senate Republicans have spent the summer repeatedly, yet unsuccessfully, trying to pass legislation that eliminates or overhauls former President Obama's 2010 health care law. The problem is they didn't have a replacement in hand and apparently were starting from scratch. They mimicked much of the process that we saw and criticized the, the uh, Democrats for for failing to provide information um, timely so that uh, informed decisions could be made. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had uh, hoped to pass the skinny repeal measure late Thursday. But when the vote finally took place early Friday morning, three Republicans, as I mentioned, McCain, Collins and Murkowski, they joined with Democrats in opposition, killing that plan. Speaking on the floor after the vote, McConnell lamented its failure and called it a disappointing moment. It's time to move on, he said. And some are speculating that senators are thinking just that. Perhaps McConnell's leadership has fallen short. Across the Capitol, House Speaker Paul Ryan said on Friday that he was disappointed and frustrated. And he encouraged the Senate to keep working toward health care. But he said the House will focus on other issues. At the top of that list is cutting taxes for middle class families and fixing our broken tax code, he said. I'm optimistic we can still get it done. Well, one hopes that that will be the case as they move forward. And again, uh, August, September, very busy months, a lot to do. Some of it that's not optional that has to be done. Well, nearly two dozen Republicans are calling on the uh, Trump Justice Department to appoint a second special counsel to investigate the raft of 2016 campaign controversies involving Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration, warning these questions cannot be allowed to die on the vine amid the Russia probe firestorm. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Bob Goodlot, a Republican out of Virginia and GOP committee colleagues, made the request in a letter on Thursday to Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. The American public has a right to know the facts, all of them surrounding the election and its aftermath, they wrote. We urge you to appoint a special counsel a second special counsel to ensure these troubling, unanswered questions are not relegated to the dustbin of history. I don't think that the crimes of the prior administration of Hillary Clinton, the collusion with James Comey and Loretta Lynch, should be forgotten just because Hillary lost the election. Well, the lawmakers want an entirely separate special counsel probe from the one Robert Mueller is leading into Russian meddling into the 2016 election, rather, and possible coordination with Trump associates. The crux of their argument is that numerous unanswered questions remain from the 2016 campaign cycle that have been pushed aside amid the intense Russian focus. Now, among those is whether or not the administration attempted to aid the success of Uh, the Democrat uh, candidate, and there seems to be evidence to suggest that they're suggesting a special counsel would be appropriate to clarify what was done or uh, not done in that race. Meanwhile, North Korea's recent test of an intercontinental ballistic missile has increased the danger the country's leader, Kim Jong-un, will be able to strike to the United strike, rather, the United States sooner than expected. The commander of U.S. forces Korea said on Wednesday. Now, this is before the Friday launch of an ICBM missile that even heightened that concern. Commenting on Wednesday uh, on reports that the July 4th test of what the military says is calling it KN-20 missile moved up estimates of the timeline for fielding a reliable long-range nuclear missile. Army General Vincent Brooks, the commander, said in a brief interview, we believe they have. It is a bit of a game changer for us, the four-star general said of the missile test that flew 1,700 miles into space and flew for 37 minutes, longer than any previous North Korean missile fight test. A defense official said the new intelligence assessment, which was presented to Congress on Wednesday, concludes that North Korea's missile program is advancing faster than earlier estimates had predicted. The latest assessment says the missile can reach the West Coast of the United States earlier estimates. Uh, In fact, it said that the KN-20 could only reach Alaska and Hawaii. That has since been modified. That was Wednesday. Since then, there was a Friday launch not only involving North Korea, but Iran as well. Uh, The two remaining members of the Axis of Evil, 
phrase coined by President George W. Bush, launched rockets on back-to-back days with Iran and North Korea blatantly flouting international resolve as each took significant steps toward developing their own nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missiles. North Korea on Friday, for the second time this month, successfully launched an ICBM into space and had its re-entry vehicle splashed down. Friday's rocket landed in the Sea of Japan, about 600 miles from the launch pad, 200 miles from the Japanese coast. However, U.S. officials were still assessing the missile's apex, which more accurately um, determines how far the rocket could strike. On Thursday, the day before, Iran launched its own rocket based off a North Korean design towards space. The Islamic Republic said the launch was a success, but the U.S. assessments pegged the Iranian posture as propaganda. Officials believe the Iranian rocket suffered a catastrophic failure and likely blew up. Neither missile posed an imminent threat to to North America, however. The North Korean launch drew a swift response from the Pentagon. Our commitment to the defense of our allies, including the Republic of Korea and Japan, in the face of these threats remains ironclad. We remain prepared to defend ourselves and our allies from any attack or provocation. And while North Korea is actively and openly engaged in trying to perfect its ICBM technology so the rocket could one day be topped with a nuclear weapon and potentially launch at foes around the globe, Iran's program is far more secretive. Following the landmark Iran nuclear deal... Uh, Signed two years ago and championed by the Obama administration, Iran's development of a nuclear bomb was believed to have been pushed back significantly. At least it was believed by a few. But officials believe Thursday's launch of a space vehicle carrying a satellite payload was merely a test of technology that could be easily adapted to an ICBM. The Trump administration, which has railed against the Obama brokered nuclear deal, but signed off on it at least for the next uh, period moved on Friday to impose additional sanctions on Iran due to the ultimate the un- ultimately unsuccessful rocket test. Treasury Secretary Stephen Munchen he said the sanctions illustrated deep U.S. concerns about Iran's missile testing and other actions. He said the U.S. would continue countering Iran's ballistic missile program, including the provocative space launch that apparently failed uh, yesterday. I should say Friday. Uh, meanwhile, today the uh, the Pentagon said the latest intercontinental ballistic missile from Uh, North Korea was the longest test in the history of the rogue regime. And while many specifics of the ICBM launch remain classified, Pentagon spokesperson Jeff Davis said the North Korean flight on Friday was the dictatorship's most advanced attempt so far. Well, President Trump said that he would sign a series of bills that will impose stiff financial sanctions on Russia. The announcement comes after Congress this week overwhelmingly approved packages to punish Moscow for allegedly meddling in U.S. elections. After Congress approved the sanctions, Moscow said it was reducing the number of U.S. diplomats in Russia in retaliation. More on that in a moment. But in a statement late Friday, Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said the president had reviewed the final version and based on its Uh, responsiveness to his negotiations, approved the bill and intends to sign it. The legislation is aimed to punish Moscow for interfering, uh, interfering rather in the 2016 presidential election and for its military aggression in Ukraine and Syria, where the Kremlin has backed President Bashar Assad. It also imposes financial sanctions against Iran and North Korea. Now, before Trump's uh, decision to sign the bill into law, Senator John McCain said the bill's passage was long overdue, a jab at Trump and the GOP controlled Congress. McCain, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, has called Putin a murderer and a thug. Over the last eight months, what price has Russia paid for attacking our elections, McCain asked? Very little. Russia's foreign ministry on Friday said it's ordering the U.S. embassy in Russia to reduce the number of diplomats by the 1st of September. Russia will also close down the embassy's recreational retreat on the outskirts of Moscow, as well as warehouse facilities. Meanwhile, some European countries expressed concerns that the measures targeting Russia's energy sector would harm its business involved in piping Russian natural gas. Uh, Germany's foreign minister said his country wouldn't accept the U.S. sanctions against Russia being applied to European companies. A spokesperson for the European Commission said Friday that European officials will be watching the U.S. effort closely, vowing to remain vigilant. So that's part of the challenge is the European interests in that region. Well, more specifically, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin says that he's going to expel 755 diplomats in response to uh, U.S. sanctions. Now, there aren't 755 U.S. diplomats or 
a few diplomats and lots of staff. So his statement is a bit misleading. But the expulsions had been announced on Friday in response to the uh, new law passed by Congress. It was a regrettable and uncalled for act, the State Department official told the Associated Press. Earlier, a State Department official said it's uh, our policy to not comment on the number of individuals serving at our missions Abroad, We know that there are at least 755 people. What roles they play, not altogether clear. Well, Putin uh, blasts the U.S. sanctions, offering uh, uh, Comey asylum during a call-in uh, some time back. I decided it's time for us to, uh, to show we do not intend to leave U.S. actions unanswered, Putin said, according to Interfax News Agency. The U.S. has taken an unprovoked step towards worsening bilateral relations, he went on to say. He also said that uh, Russia could consider other options in response to the U.S., but that he hoped it would uh, not come to that. Uh, Putin noted that recent creation of a de-escalation zone in southern Syria as one of the examples of how the countries have worked together. However, in terms of general relations, Putin went on to say we have waited long enough, hoping that the situation would perhaps change for the better. But it seems that even if the situation is changing, it is not anytime soon. Well, the new American sanctions were in retaliation, both for Russia's takeover of Crimea in 2014 and Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election. seems to me the uh, response to the um, uh, Crimean uh, conflict is a bit late, but the uh, elections, as uh, John McCain put it, it's about time. We'll see what happens next and we'll try to cover that uh, that story. 30 minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just before the break, I was commenting on the fact that the administration has issued or Congress has issued sanctions on Iran, Russia and North Korea. Well, on Sunday, uh, the Treasury Department slapped sanctions on Nicolas Maduro uh, from Venezuela. Allegedly that Venezuela's president has attempted to undermine democracy and the rule of law in his country. Well, on Sunday, Venezuela held a controversial election to create a national constituent assembly, a constitutional assembly that could grant Maduro's party sweeping power. But many uh, countries said that they would not recognize that vote. Treasury Secretary Stephen Munchen, he said those who participate participate in the illegitimate assembly could face future U.S. sanctions for their role in undermining democratic processes and institutions in Venezuela. Well, the ANC, which uh, many expect to be stacked with Maduro supporters, would be able to rewrite the country's constitution. In a statement, Munchen continued, yesterday's illegitimate elections confirmed that Maduro is a dictator who disregards the will of the Venezuelan people. By sanctioning Maduro, the United States makes clear our opposition to the policies of his regime and our support for the people of Venezuela, who seek to return their country to a full and prosperous democracy, end quote. Well, Venezuela has been engulfed in an economic crisis featuring skyrocketing inflation, food shortages. The country's economy has been uh, tied to its oil exports, exports rather, uh, but was sent into a downward spiral with uh, crashing oil prices in 2014. In recent months, protesters have flooded the streets there as uh, clashes have turned violent with more than 100 people killed in that chaos. What's happening in Venezuela is the end of the Constitution, National Security. Advisor H.R. McMaster told reporters on uh, this afternoon, he said that the erosion of democracy is the country um, has been accelerating. By designating Maduro himself, he joins a very exclusive club, including Mr. Mugabe, Bashar al-Assad, and Kim Jong-un, McMaster said during the uh, daily White House briefing. Well, the State Department's top lawyers are systematically removing the word genocide to describe the Islamic State's mass slaughter of Christians, Yazidis and other ethnic minorities in Iraq and Syria from speeches before they are delivered and other official documents, according to human rights activists and attorneys familiar rather with the policies. Additionally, Democratic senators are delaying confirmation of Mark Green, Trump's pick for head of the U.S. Agency for International Development, who has broad bipartisan support. Now, these efforts guarantee that Obama-era policies that work to exclude Iraq's Christian and other minority religious populations from key U.S. aid programs remain in place, the activists are saying. Rick um, Richard Visek, 
uh, who was appointed by President Obama as head of the State Department's Office of Legal Advisor in October of 2016, is behind the decision to remove the word genocide from official documents, according to Nina Shea, the international human rights lawyer who directs the Hudson Institute's Center for Religious Freedom. I don't think for a minute it's a bureaucratic decision. It's ideological, Shea says. She also spent 12 years as a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, Uh, from 1999 to 2012. A State Department spokesperson said today that uh, he would look into the matter and respond. The latest moves from the State Department's Office of the Legal Advisor appear aimed at rolling back then-Secretary of State John Kerry's March 2016 genocide determination. Kerry's much-anticipated designation came after months of equivocation and detailed documentation by interested parties that the Islamic State is responsible for genocide against Yazidis, Christians, and Shia Muslims. It was one of the few times in the history of the United States designated on ongoing mass murders against ethnic or religious minorities as meeting the legal definition of genocide laid out in the 1948 treaty. That agreement requires signatories, including the United States, to take steps to prevent and punish genocide. It demands a response. Well, a bipartisan group on Capitol Hill, lawmakers and activists, including Senator Marco Rubio and Representative Robert um, Adderhalt, We're hoping the designation would help direct uh, U.S. dollars to relief funds for Christians, Yazidis and other persecuted religious minority communities. ISIS murderers and kidnappings have decimated the Christian population in Iraq, which numbered between 800,000 and 1.4 million in 2002, reducing it to fewer than 250,000 now. Without action, activists and charities say Christians could disappear completely from Iraq in the near future. After meeting with Pope Francis in May, President Trump vowed to do everything in his power to defend and protect the historic Christian communities in the Middle East. Activists and Catholic leaders are now calling on Trump to turn the rhetoric into action on the ground and help get U.S. aid to those persecuted communities trying to rebuild their homes and their lives in Iraq. Now, these advocates want the State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, and the United Nations to allow church groups and other religious-affiliated relief organizations to receive government aid, a practice prohibited during the Obama administration. In early May, Congress allocated more than $1.3 billion in funds for refugee assistance and included uh, specific language to try to ensure that at least some of that money is used to assist persecuted religious communities, including Christians, Yazidis, and uh, Shia Muslims, all the groups the State Department deemed victims of genocide in 2016. Nevertheless, only $10 million is specifically airmarked for those groups. The Trump administration has until the end of September, when the stopgap funding bill runs out, to ensure it distributes the funds in the most effective way. We'll continue to follow uh, that story. Meanwhile, conservatives in states across the country say that uh, pushes to pass laws requiring nonprofits to report their donors' private information threaten First Amendment rights. I've been contacted by dozens of constituents, says Oklahoma State Representative Mark LePeck, a Republican, speaking to the Daily Signal in an email. Uh, they're concerned about their right to privacy and possible harassment by organizations or individuals or even their employers um, if uh, their donation histories are made public. At least a dozen states have considered such donor disclosure legislation this year, but none has been successful, according to the State Policy Network, which is a nonprofit organization. They support independent think tanks around the nation. Since January of last year, uh, or rather January of this year, 16 states have considered laws that would require causes and groups like the Heritage Foundation, uh, Family Research Council and others to report the names and addresses of their supporters to state government. Uh, Heritage, uh, a leading conservative think tank we often reference and uh, uh, draw from here, is the parent organization of the Daily Signal. Well, none of these uh, donor disclosure initiatives has passed so far, um, but there is concern. There is a coalition of groups that have been extremely active in trying to defeat these laws, so they're not just uh, failing on their own. They're failing from a lot of work from nonprofit organizations coming together to defeat them. One perfect example of the harm that donor disclosure laws can cause, um, Missouri State Senator Bob Onder says, is uh, uh, the Mozilla Foxfire case. If anyone doubts that the donors can be intimidated and harmed when left-wing groups get a hold of their names, just ask Brendan Eich. Onder, a Republican, said in a phone interview, political opponents forced Ike out of his job in 2014 after disclosure of his donations to a ballot initiative in California to preserve the state's definition of marriage as the union of one man and one woman. 
Uh, he had made a thousand dollar donation to Proposition 8, which was the California Marriage Amendment. And he ended up having to step down as CEO of one of the top tech companies in the world because of the left's intimidation. Now, he had not been accused of misdeeds in his position of uh, mistreating any employees who fell in the categories that Proposition 8 addressed, but simply because he gave of his private uh, funds to a cause they deemed unacceptable, he lost his position as CEO. In Oklahoma, state lawmakers this year considered legislation requiring donor disclosure for 501c3 tax-exempt organizations, a move uh, many say would impinge on constitutional rights. I have my own concerns, says Mr. Lepec, who represents Rogers County in the northeastern part of Oklahoma. We have a right to free speech, and today we see acts of violence against those with whom we disagree. The well-publicized events of many college campuses being a prime example, and more recently, the shootings at the congressional baseball practice outside Washington, D.C. But State Representative uh, Jason Murphy, a Republican who represents Logan County in central Oklahoma, sponsored uh, donor disclosure legislation in the House. Oklahoma State Senator Anthony Scott uh, sponsored the bill in the Senate, saying, I don't think there is a series of groups behind this bill. Uh, I think that Senator Skies uh, was exploring methods uh, for more campaign transparency in response to issues arising from last fall's Oklahoma ballot initiative. So whatever the motivation might be, there certainly have thus far been examples of intimidation from one side to the other, but not the other way around. Uh, In any event, the, uh, the battle over whether or not to disclose uh, donor information. And I can guarantee you, because I've seen it happen serving on boards and in other organizations in different ways, that uh, businesses are far less likely today to give to charitable causes, even uh, relatively innocuous charitable causes, if there's even the hint, the whiff that it could uh, cost their business in any tangible way. It will have an impact. And my guess would be on uh, more conservative-leaning, traditional-value-leaning organizations in terms of their uh, fundraising. And we're already seeing uh, examples where uh, ideology has uh, garnered a label that was not merited in uh, in several cases. Well, a lawsuit by states seeking to end protected status for children whose parents brought them to the United States illegally could spare President uh, Trump from personally halting the Obama administration program. We'll tell you more about what these 10 states are asking for, we're talking about um, what uh, immigration experts say, uh, litigation that could force Democrats in Congress to bargain on stricter enforcement of immigration law. So we'll talk about uh, that. And uh, also later in the program, we'll talk about the very warm weather. Well, warm, that's an understatement. The very hot weather that we're expecting here in the Portland metro area. Triple digit days begin on Tuesday. We'll tell you uh, what to anticipate. Also, there are local cooling centers for those uh, who need help. And uh, we mentioned last week that PERS, the board, was uh, going to meet and take some um, important action on how they were going to move in this um, struggling retirement system. We'll let you know what the, the PERS board decided to do. Uh, that's later in today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 49 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. While a lawsuit by states uh, that are trying to end protected status for children whose parents brought them to the United States uh, outside the law could uh, spare the president from halting the Obama administration program, or immigration experts say that kind of litig- lit- uh, litigation rather could force Democrats in Congress to bargain on stricter enforcement of immigration law. Last month, uh, 10 state attorneys general, led by uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, wrote U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions calling for the Trump administration to end a program called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. The program shields from deportation those who were minors when their parents brought them to the country illegally, a population uh, their um, advocates call dreamers. Well, according to U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service Services, rather, 1.4 million DACA requests were accepted. The state attorneys general have filed a lawsuit, but they're willing to drop it if the Trump administration acts. There's no way around it. DACA is an unlawful program that must be phased out. 
That's a quote from the Arkansas Attorney General, Leslie Rutledge, who signed the letter along with many others. Uh, speaking uh, on the uh, subject, I'm not asking the government to remove any person currently covered by DACA or for administration to rescind DACA permits that have already been issued. This is about upholding the rule of law, Rutledge went on to say. Even former President Obama acknowledged many times that he did not have authority to unilaterally grant this type of legal status to over one million illegal aliens in the country. Well, Justice Department spokeswoman Lauren um, Airsome confirmed that the department received the letter but declined further comment. Besides Paxton, those signing the letter to Sessions include the attorneys general of Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Kansas, Louisiana, Nebraska, South Carolina, Tennessee, and West Virginia. Idaho Governor C.L. Butch Otter also signed. In 2012, while President Obama was running for re-election, his Department of Homeland Security adopted the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, program. In 2014, then-President Obama expanded protection from deportation to the parents of illegal immigrants with a Deferred Action for Parents of Americans with Lawful Permanent Residence, or DAPA, with a P. After states sued, courts rejected DAPA, asserting the executive branch doesn't have the solitary power to grant legal status. In June, citing the rulings, Trump Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly revoked the 2014 memo authorizing DAPA, but the agency said at the time that DACA would remain in effect. Now, John Kelly, by the way, is no longer the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. He's now Chief of Staff. The Supreme Court uh, deadlocked on DAPA in 2016, leaving it in uh, effect a U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision upholding an injunction that blocked the policy. If DAPA is illegal, then DACA is illegal, one for the parents, others for the uh, the other, rather, for the the children, uh, many of whom are now adult. Mark uh, Kirkokian, Kirkokian, I have trouble saying that name, who's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies, said that dreamers are the most sympathetic group of illegals. This would involve taking something away. So you would have a, a string of sob stories in the media, which would be Pulitzer bait. Uh, That's a quote, by the way. However, if the Trump administration simply allows a case against DACA to move forward, the courts likely would strike down the program, alleviating it from political blame. Uh, He said uh, it's it also might force Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer to reach a deal for tougher enforcement of immigration laws in exchange for the Trump administration's agreeing to provide protection from deportation of the Dreamers. Uh, Krakokian went on to say the administration might hope the courts will decide for them, uh, for them rather, and they can say our hands are tied, which they so often do. Uh, if Texas and the other states sue, the uh, DACA struck down and DACA is struck down rather and is about to turn into a pumpkin. Might it, uh, Trump might be able to pressure Schumer to pass E-Verify and end uh, chain migration Well, under E-Verify. Uh, Now voluntary employers electronically check the legal status of immigrant workers. Many conservatives hope to make that mandatory. The back and forth will continue. But in the meantime, uh, these states, uh, 10 of them, are ready for legal action to undo the amnesty for dreamers, not looking for immediate uh, deportation. At least that's what's being said at this point, uh, but looking for in the long term, uh, perhaps some compromise on other issues that would address immigration in the country. So we'll follow that uh, follow that story. Virtual reality appears to be on the verge of taking Hollywood by storm. And for that matter, people sitting on their couch, it could soon be coming to a theater near you, completely changing the way you view motion pictures in the process. That will probably start there, but then people will be back on their couches when virtual reality makes it to their homes. VR, as it's referred to, currently uses head-mounted goggles to generate realistic images and sounds that simulate a viewer's physical presence in a virtual environment. VR helmets make the Oculus Rift and Sony PlayStation VR bring viewers into a 3D environment where they can move within a storyline and in some cases even interact with it. Fueling that trend are forward-thinking directors and producers in Hollywood, and they're looking for a way to lure the movie-watching audience out of their homes and back into theaters. Hollywood thinks virtual reality or VR might be just the ticket. Let's hope it's not so expensive that people end up back on their couches. Ivan Reitman, who directed Ghostbusters, tells the Los Angeles Times that virtual reality is an amazing experience. He added that what it does is force you to bring yourself into the story. 
For several years, companies like Oculus, which Facebook uh, bought out for $2 billion in 2014, have controlled the market. But now Hollywood is recognizing its potential and major players in the industry are making investment in content deals. Sony Pictures recently made history, for example, when it named Jake Zim the first VR czar at a major studio. Ridley Scott, director of Gladiator, Blade Runner and Alien and other classics, they're positioning or rather he's positioning himself to be one of the pioneers of the new technology. He recently launched a new division devoted to the development and production of virtual reality programs. The first project out of um, this effort is the virtual reality short from Scott's new movie, Alien Covenant. Uh, others, another player developing uh, the project is Chris Milk, who began his career directing music videos for leading artists. Uh, artists, rather, He's the founder and CEO of Within, a virtual reality production company. His first production was a, a collaboration with the singer-songwriter Beck. It gave online viewers the chance to watch um, Beck's performance from several 360-degree cameras. As with uh, any developing technology, one barrier is consumer adoption could be price. High-end systems like the Oculus Rift is priced at about $500 and up than requires a computer. Uh, but the um, they're developing standalone uh, headsets from for the Google Daydream platform, a fully wireless standalone headset. And according to The Hollywood Reporter, it would operate without a computer uh, or mobile phone to power it and could bring uh, virtual reality costs down considerably. The first uh, really significant advance uh, in movie theaters may be evidence in the movie theater lobbies where the uh, technology is being uh, tried out, if you will. As I thought about this, uh, this notion of virtual reality and the ability to um, bring oneself into a situation and the other technology I talked about uh, last week in which you can uh, literally make the figure of a uh, familiar figure. In this case, it was the president put words in his mouth. Uh, it is his voice. They are there. There are his words, his face you're viewing. And they made the image of the president one while he was um, uh, the chief executive, another using image, uh, an image of him uh, while he was still a university uh, student and put the voice of the older man into the mouth of the younger man. And it was uh, it was seamless. You couldn't tell uh, that it was, in fact, uh, technically created. And it does uh, raise uh, questions about what kind of uh, experiences this kind of technology might provide in the future and how it might be uh, misused. Now, I'm not suggesting it not be developed, but I do always wonder about the development of technology and how it might be used in ways that were not anticipated that could, uh, in fact, be nefarious. Now, the first really significant advance uh, in movie theaters, as I mentioned, has been in the movie theater lobby. The idea is that a moviegoer could watch a film in the theater and then pay an additional fee in the lobby to watch a shorter version of it with virtual reality, a version of the movie where the viewer actually becomes uh, the Ghostbuster, for example. A corporate vice president of Advanced Micro Devices says that uh, if 100 theaters installed six of these stations in their lobbies and could attract 50 users a day on each station at $10 a pop, that would bring in more than $100 million in revenue. And that, of course, is the bottom line. Two of these uh, virtual reality units on display at a recent expo in Las Vegas were designed with theater lobbies in mind, sort of a test run. Uh, the 4DX VR sports attraction is essentially a bicycle frame uh, for users to sit on while they take part in the virtual reality hover bike race. And the experience, I can't even imagine, is uh, is actually absolutely exhilarating. The frame is coordinated with the video to give the users a sense of motion, and the price was $5 per use. Uh, beyond that, some hope to soon move the virtual reality experience into the theater itself. Audience members would be seated in a VR motion chair, providing a ride-like experience so that when you see something happen on the screen, uh, you are physically uh, experiencing what uh, the, the screen is depicting. Uh, Cinemark, which is the third largest uh, theater chain in the United States um, by a number of screens, plans to bring virtual reality into their theater, according to CNET.com. Uh, the CEO there uh, says that, notes rather, that about 150,000 movie screens in the world. He says almost all of these theaters are potential distribution points for virtual reality content. And this is apparently the wave of the future for entertainment. I started the program talking about the fact that I needed Dramamine just to sort through all the dizzying changes in Washington. Dramamine may uh, become more of a uh, 
uh, regular fixture if virtual reality is also added to uh, the potential experiences of the American citizen. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you probably know by now, the National Weather Service has issued an excessive heat warning for the Portland metro area. It doesn't happen very much. For much of this week, temperatures are going to uh, are going to be in the 100s in the northwest part of the state and southwest Washington. The warning goes into effect noon on Tuesday, and it's scheduled to last until 11 p.m. on Friday in the Willamette Valley, the Coast Range, Cascade Foothills, Cascades, Columbia River Gorge, and Upper Hood River Valley. Again, it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it comes with a, well, a heat wave. Uh, Meteorologist Chris McGinnis, he forecasts a high of 99 degrees on Tuesday, which could tie a record for August 1st. He said Portland could get up to 105 degrees on Wednesday, which would uh, be an August 2nd record, 106 degrees on Thursday, which would be a record as well. Uh, For some uh, perspective, the 2009 heat wave brought temperatures at Portland International Airport over 100 on three consecutive days, including back-to-back 106-degree readings on July the 28th and 29th, he said. This week looks similar, and uh, a fourth 100-degree day is not out of the question on Friday. So make sure uh, you are prepared for that. You know, the the regular routine with pets and uh, make sure that uh, folks who are disabled or elderly in your area and perhaps live alone, that they um, have enough uh, of what they need to stay cool and hydrated. Uh, They say the all-time heat record for Portland is 107 degrees. That was reached way back in 1942, but again in 1965 and in 1981. Right now, it looks like even the coast is going to get quite hot. Winds with... Uh, will either die down or uh, shift, allowing for at least one day, probably Wednesday, uh, around 90 degrees. That's pretty rare for the Oregon coast. Um, by Friday, onshore flow should cool the coast back to normal temperatures, but right now it's uh, it doesn't look like that. Cooler air makes it inland until Saturday or Sunday. Here's some... Um, Forecast for the area Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Vancouver, 98, 105, 106, respectively. The all-time high in Vancouver, 108 degrees. In Troutdale, again, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, temperatures expected 99, 104, 106. For there, 108 degrees is the all-time high. In Hillsboro, 99, 106, 107. In McMinnville, 99, 106, 105. The all-time high there is 110 degrees. In Salem and Eugene, the all-time high is 108. But in each of those um, uh, c- cities in Salem, 99, 106, 106. Again, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And in Eugene, 99, 105, 105. It is going to be very hot. Well, with temperatures expected to rise as high as 106 this week, cities and counties across the metro area, they've started announcing locations and hours for cooling centers. Not everybody has a good fan that circulates what will be very hot air that uh, provides any relief or has air conditioning. Um the cooling centers uh, you can find at many of the local television station uh, websites because that information is being updated regularly. Um, but there are places you can go if, in fact, you find that uh, it's just intolerably hot where you happen uh, to be. Um, well, I have a, a number of them in uh, the Salem area, but also in Portland, um, Riverfront Park. Um, well, I'm not going to go through all of these. You can find them. Uh, online, but uh, there are cooling centers for those who need some extra relief during this very, uh, very hot weather. And again, keep an eye and ear open uh, for the elderly in your area. It can be very dangerous to get overheated. My mother and I have a conversation every time the temperatures get to a certain level. Um, she enjoys going out in the backyard and just sitting out under the umbrella and reading. On days like this, it's just a good idea to stay indoors. We are blessed to have air conditioning, and so she'll stay plenty cool. Make sure others, maybe they're not living close to you, but give them a call and make sure they're doing all right during this uh, this hot weather. Well, speaking of hot weather and cooling centers, the PERS board met on Friday, and there was a lot of anticipation as to what they might decide to do. Well, the governing board of the state's public pension system, Friday, they lowered 
lowered the rate of assumed earnings on the state's pension fund that's in deep trouble. The board adopted to assume a 7.2% rate of return on the state's investment of the Portland Employees Retirement Fund. The rate is currently 7.5%. Now, it doesn't sound like that's going to make much of a decision, uh, or, or difference rather, but the decision doesn't affect how much the state actually earns on its investments, which are overseen by the state's investment council. But the change is projected to increase the system's unfunded actuarial liability, and that's the amount by which the system's obligations exceed its assets. So it will make a difference. Well, according to um, uh, the Capital Bureau, using the new rate, the state's actuary will calculate a new unfunded actuarial liability, a figure that will be revealed later this year. So we don't know what difference it will make, but we're assured it will make a difference. The new rate is expected to increase the unfunded liability at most recent valuation, $21.8 billion by about $2 billion. Well, the decision is also expected to increase the amount of money that individual public employers must dedicate to paying for employees' pension benefits as a share of payroll. Well, in a defined benefit plan, such as the one Oregon provides to its employees, employers have to make up the difference between what employees are guaranteed and what the state's investments are able to return. It all really boils down to taxpayer dollars and how those dollars are invested and then returned in the form of benefit payments. Local budget managers are bracing for the effects of the change. And while the decision may appear abstract for school districts, where personnel costs can make up roughly 80 percent of annual budgets, the effects are real and can be dramatic. Nearly every year since 2008, Eastern Oregon's Umatilla School District, for example, has had to make cuts in, uh, in part because of increased pension costs, according to Superintendent Heidi Seip. Well, she said the increases have been higher than additional funds from the state can, uh, from the state and what the state can cover. Over the past 10 years, they've modified their textbook adoption uh, processes, limited their supply budgets, enacted energy saving procedures, limited staff increases, cut paid days. Uh, uh, had pay freezes. Uh, she wrote in an email last week, if we cannot get funding to adequately address the PERS increases from the state, I see those same strategies again at play in our future, which is concerning for our students, end quote. Well, the rate decision has been monitored with interest, especially by those advocating for reforms to the state's pension system, which is inevitable but keeps being uh, put off a brighter Oregon, which is a coalition, a coalition rather of state businesses that angled for spending reforms during the recently concluded legislative session. Session rather is one such observer saying a more realistic assumption is uh, an important first step toward unmasking the severity of the problem these rising PERS costs create for our state, schools, and local governments. That's a quote from Pat McCormick. He's a spokesman for the uh, for the group, and ultimately uh, went on to say that Oregon taxpayers left holding the bill for the pension system's growing unfunded liability. And again, that's the bottom line. House Minority Leader Mike McLean um, from Butte, uh, Powell Butte said in a statement Friday that the vote should serve as a sobering moment for our state's political leaders. Earlier this week, a group appointed by Governor Kate Brown, a Democrat, to find ways to leverage state assets to chip away at the unfunded liability held their first meeting. It's been charged with finding a way to shave $5 billion from the unfunded liability. They're reviewing the state's assets. Lawmakers can't reduce benefits already earned per the 2015 Oregon Supreme Court decision. Some lawmakers, including many Republicans, propose modifying public employee benefits going forward as a way to cut down on the system's costs. But as you know, there will be a lot of uh, objections to that possibility. So we're going to continue to uh, hope that they'll take this problem seriously moving forward and come up with a solution that everybody can live with. Um, This unfunded liability is... uh, is cutting into a lot of things, including education. Well, the city of Los Angeles reached a deal today for the city to host the 2028 Summer Olympic Games. Now, that's a decision made on faith that we're still going to be around in 2028, and there will be Olympic Games. We won't be plunged into some... Uh, major conflict. The agreement follows an earlier vote this month by the International Olympic Committee to seek a deal to award the 2024 and 2028 Games. With the agreement, Los Angeles would get the uh, 2028 Games. Paris, which is widely seen as the favorite, uh, would get the 2024 Olympic Games. The deal would make Los Angeles a three-time Olympic city after hosting in 1932, 1984. So again, Los Angeles uh, reaches a deal to host the 2028 Olympic Games. I understand uh, James Blend and family are going to be there. Well, who knows? But it would be fun to to 
have the opportunity to be at one Olympic game anyway. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. We learned on Friday that uh, 11-month-old Charlie Gard, whose first birthday would have been this week, uh, he died. Um, the search for cures continues. Bureaucrats should not stand in the way. So says U.S. Representative Brad Winstrup. He represents Ohio's 2nd District. And putting into perspective in National Review the events that we witnessed over the five months that Charlie Gard's uh, story was made public, he writes this. Five grueling months went by as Charlie Gard and Connie Yates battled with the U.K. courts for the right to, f- to fight for their son's life. This week, they withdrew their petition seeking to bring Charlie to the U.S. for experimental treatment. That was last week. The article is dated July 28th. The fight for little Charlie's life caught the attention of the world, and now commentators and talking heads are busy casting blame. The case can be made that delay caused the death. At the very least, the drawn-out court battle deprived Charlie's parents of the opportunity to see whether experimental treatment might have saved his life. A whole lot of time has been wasted, Ms. Yates said through tears. We are sorry we could not save you, she said of her son. Regardless of blame, a little boy has lost his only chance at life. The heart-wrenching truth is that thousands of children around the globe died every day for a myriad of reasons, but that does not lighten the weight of this death. The individual is what defines our humanity. Charlie's short life is a reminder that every human life, no matter how great or small, young or old, has inherent dignity and value. Every life is worth fighting for. And fight Charlie's parents did. They raised more than $1.6 million to pay for their son to receive experimental treatment in the United States. They advocated fiercely. They refused to give up hope. In response, a renowned U.S. medical center offered to admit Charlie Gard and provide him with experimental treatment. Representative Trent Franks and I introduced legislation to expedite the process to bring Charlie and his parents to the United States in order for them to pursue their last best hope for their son's life. Again, quoting U.S. Representative Brad um, Winstrup. Other members of Congress brought forward similar pieces of legislation. My friend Jamie Herrera Butler, a congresswoman representing a district in Washington state, shared her own story of fighting for her unborn baby's life after the child was diagnosed with Potter syndrome, a condition that develops in utero when no kidneys formed. Her doctor told her that the condition was 100 percent fatal and suggested abortion as the next step. However, Jamie and her husband did not lose faith. They found a doctor who was willing to try an experimental treatment. It was successful. And today, Jamie's daughter, Abigail, is four years old. This is personal to me as well. When my little sister, Amy, was diagnosed with leukemia as an adult, the doctors told her that the only real cure would be a bone marrow transplant. The insurance company refused coverage, though on the grounds that it was an experimental treatment. Amy fought the company and successfully attained partial coverage while paying the rest herself. We did the bone marrow transplant on her doctor's advice. Today, 23 years later, Amy is married and the mother of two beautiful children. My sister's doctor and Abigail's doctor were fighting for the lives of their patients. In contrast, Great Ormond Street Hospital was advocating for permission not only to withdraw treatment, but also to block Charlie's parents from taking him to get treatment elsewhere in the United States. The hospital bureaucrats argued that the experimental treatment was not what Charlie's doctors deemed to be in his best interest. This is a far cry from past medical cases in which doctors have interceded in order to provide a child with treatment over a parent's wishes with the justification of saving a child's life. In Charlie's case, it was the opposite. A little boy was being ordered to die because a third party overriding the wishes of the parents believed it could determine that immediate death was what was best for him. The effect of any case like this ripple far beyond a single life. Not only would experimental treatment have provided the only chance to improve Charlie's condition, it also could have offered the opportunity for Charlie to increase the chance of recovery for others suffering from this condition in the future. A cure begins with one Charlie Gard. Charlie Gard's brave fight inspired individuals across the globe to join in the battle for life, for hope and for cures. That will be his enduring legacy. His life should serve as a reminder that these principles must be the basis for any successful health care system. As we debate health care here in the United States, let us remember that any reforms we implement should center should rather be centered on improving health, preventing illness, valuing life and striving for breakthroughs in treatments and cures. We should be encouraging, not inhibiting, uh, inhibiting innovation and experimentation in order to bring new cures and better care to the next generation. 
Looking ahead, Charlie's parents hope to establish a foundation to ensure that Charlie's voice continues to be heard. As we stand with the family, let both our nations be reminded of the risk incurred when our health care systems are endowed with ultimate authority to determine which lives are unworthy of being lived and who may be denied their own fight for survival. Again, uh, Brad Winstrup represents Ohio's 2nd Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. For me, the final word on the life and the death of Charlie Gard, whose birthday would have been this week. Well, tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to talking with Gary Ingram, uh, Ingraham. He's the executive director of Love and Truth Network. It's one of the Restored Hope Network uh, ministries from across the country. We're going to talk with Gary, whose unique story, his and that of his wife, uh, both followers of Jesus who stepped away from the homosexual lifestyle because they wanted their life to, to be lived consistent with moral purity they found in Scripture. We're going to talk about this ministry that's very similar to Portland Fellowship uh, here in town. In fact, they're a member organization of uh, Restored Hope. I wanted to give you a glimpse of another organization from across the country that's coming up on uh, Tuesday. We're also going to talk with Dr. Steve Ruskin. Uh, he is the author of America's First Great Eclipse, How Scientists Tourists and the Rocky Mountain Eclipse of 1878 changed astronomy forever. We'll talk about the eclipse we're expecting next month. Well, tomorrow is next month. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about uh, some of the things you need to know in order to uh, view the eclipse, what we can learn from it, and whether or not this has the potential to have an impact, as did the uh, Rocky Mountain eclipse of 1878. We talked a little bit last week about the fact that e- the eclipse will be viewed differently depending on your vantage point, not only in this country, but across the earth. Uh, it's seen at different times and in different ways. Here it will be a total eclipse, and that is a rare thing that doesn't happen often here uh, in the Pacific Northwest. But we'll talk with uh, uh, Dr. Steve Ruskin about that when he joins us uh, on the program tomorrow. On Wednesday, Don Brown will join us. He's the co-author of The Last Fighter Pilot, the true story of the final combat mission of World War II. So I hope you can join us for that. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.